further synergy, the other church, Link Church, that is keenest to support us in uh, providing this backing to this mission to the Aboriginal community of the Northwest um, is, uh, has a real Norwest flavour as well for uh, Chris Jones and Steve Jeffrey at Chatswood. Of course, both are known to you here. So, uh, yeah, let's keep it going, eh? Um, now, uh, this series, which, uh, because I wasn't up to speed with your series titles and, uh, and chapter titles, I think I called it uh, Jonah, the Servant of the Lord, Take Two, in terms of chapter three. And um, it begins, uh, as you know, with Joseph, the prophet of Amittai, being called to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. And you, you actually somehow suspect that from Jonah's point of view, this is not going to end well. And of course, so it proved with a whale of a story. But of course, from God's point of view, it was always going to end well, wasn't it? Think about it. The book of Jonah was always going to end exactly where we're going to find it in Jonah chapter 3. Because God's ways are inscrutable. Inscrutable? Yeah, it's a bit of an old word. But it means, it's a very important word, it's a word worth learning because it means, and you've got to fit all of this into one word, it means that his plans and his ways cannot be mucked up by anyone, including creatures that get it into their head that they know better than the Creator. Creatures don't know better than the Creator. Jonah is a creature. You and I are creatures. He is the Creator. And so it begins. Jonah, servant of the Lord, take two. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message, I give you. And we are told, verse 3, that Jonah obeys. He obeys. He, uh, he actually goes as the Lord tells him to. And this is clearly a good thing. It is something that... Um, really should have happened the first time, but Jonah, unfortunately, had not cottoned on to what God was about. He hadn't done the pre-reading. He clearly hadn't been reading his Old Testament. If he had, he would have read from the Apostle Paul uh, in Romans 11. And I can say the Apostle Paul because even though he wouldn't have read the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the prophets. He's quoting the wisdom literature of Job when he says in chapter 11, at the end of his, his amazing teaching, almost like the fifth gospel, right? his teaching on this great salvation that comes to us in Christ, and he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He just can't hold it in. He gets to the end and he just says, there it is. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to him that he should repay them? For from him, through him and for him are all things. 
To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's got a decidedly revelation feel, hasn't it? And uh, it's all coming out of the Psalms and the prophets. And unfortunately, Jonah was not on that page. Because even as Jonah obeys, there in verse 3, obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh, it's not exactly what you're looking for in obedience, isn't it? It's not really with all the heart kind of obedience. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Have you tried doing that down at the shops here at um, wherever it is, Norwest? Forget any preamble. Forget anything about the Lord says, let alone telling them about the Lord. Forget Jonah doing serving God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength as he'd been brought up with from his youth. One day's journey is far enough for Jonah. He doesn't say, let me tell you of the Lord who has sent me to, sent me to speak to you his word, the Holy God. He doesn't pronounce his name as he would have known it from his infancy that the Lord declared to Moses when he said, the Lord, the Lord, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to thousands of generations, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That was the name that the Lord proclaimed to Moses. It's not one that you'd want to sign, you know, a few times each day, is it? But because names back then really referred to your character, it needed that much to reveal the character of the holy God who does not sweep sin under the carpet and yet is full of grace and mercy. We have no idea how to bring those things together until the Lord himself shows us at the cross. And Jonah is really not interested in it. He's not simply a prophet of few words that is keen to get to the point, short and sweet, nice and succinct. He is unwilling to the core. And yet, his worst fears are realised. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. It's a cracker, isn't it? It's just a cracker. It actually deals not just with stuff in Jonah. It deals with stuff in us. Do you know how many fads and trends have gone through the church in the last 2,000 years? Basically so many heresies because people lost confidence in the power of the word of God. You remember Paul also in Romans 1 says... The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe through faith. And yet I just 
think of the times I and I've witnessed others sort of think, oh, gee, it just doesn't seem to work. I think I need to, I, I need to juice it up a little bit, Lord. And so we go for a new fad, something that'll get the people in, something that'll sort of get them across the hurdle and into God's camp. And generally suffer as swift a death as possible, Lord willing. But here in Nineveh, straight away a fast is proclaimed. The response is exactly what you would have hoped whenever the prophet spoke to those who were supposedly the people of God. And yet with the unbelieving, disobedient Israelites, they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. So that means irrespective of your status and your station within the community, you actually show yourself to be completely bankrupt. Sackcloth, literally a hessian sack, and ashes. I am as nothing. I am as nothing. I had a... I had as we began Barbecue Church four and a half years ago and and sought to establish trust in the community of Wickham, I had people from the dysfunctional side of town that would come, black and white, but mainly Aboriginal, and the word got out and I had requests from the prison to go in and I had requests to take a Bible to a guy called Bob in prison and he gave his life back to the Lord and he, he... He just said, I need my wife to come to Jesus, my partner. I want her to come to church with me when I get out so that our lives can be what they should be. When he got out, she was still unwilling. But if you knew what had happened in her life, you'd understand why. And yet she said, because she would say to me when I'd visit these houses each, each month, she would say, I've been listening to you. Because they would all listen where they would drink from. We'd crank up the volume. And they would all listen and she would say, I think this Jesus is good. And then that moved to, I think I, think I need this Jesus. And then, then it moved to her coming to Barbecue Church and her saying yes to Jesus. And yet Bob went back into prison and their attempts to get their lives on track did not eventuate as they hoped and she connected to the family, bound into these deep things of the past which hopefully one day I will get a chance to explain and share with you the context. She was again in the grip of the alcohol, the gurry and the gunja, but then she began when I would visit, she would say, I need to get off the grog. And then she would actually say, I have to get off the grog. And then finally, just a few months ago, she came away from the people she was drinking with. She said, she said, Pastor, will you pick me up and bring me to church? If I don't get off the grog, not only is our family going to be lost, but I'm going to be lost. I got raped last month. I've been wanting to kill myself 
would you take me to church? And I thought she meant barbecue church, but she said, no, will you pick me up tomorrow morning? I want to come. I want to come. I want to come to church every time it's on. We've had more and more people from the Aboriginal community finally joining us on a Sunday morning and it has been wonderful. And she knew this and so she wanted to start coming too. Sadly, the next morning we could not find her to pick her up and we heard that she had gone to be with and visit family in Robin and two nights later there after a family argument she took her life. And we did not get to see this wonderful this wonderful woman for whom the Lord Jesus shed his blood, see her transformed. And if you saw her from the externals, you'd say, how lost. But if you heard some of the things that she said with me and Sean, my offsider, you, and I taped them for you, you wouldn't believe they could come from the same external image. And I was able to share at her funeral congregation, which is my regular and largest congregation, they actually are far more consistent and reliable than um, those on Sunday morning who are, like any of us in this incredibly um, demanding, affluent, seductive world, uh, get our priorities confused and actually think that we can play short shrift with meeting with God's people and hearing God's word and, once again, a bit like Jonah, do it according to our plan and our agenda rather than the Lord's. These guys are there all the time. Even if we have four funerals in a week, which between suicide and asbestos-related deaths is pretty common. And I shared with this five to 600-strong congregation and I said, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he wasn't speaking about people like you that don't have any money or people like you that are often sad and go to lots of funerals. He was speaking about people like Pauline who knew that she was completely bankrupt without Jesus, who was so sick of her sin and the sin in the world and the sin in others that she had suffered under, that she could not cope any longer without Jesus. And I always ask myself, am I following Pauline's example? I ask you this morning, are you following Pauline's example? If you do, then truly you will inherit the earth and you will be comforted. And indeed, the Ninevites respond. They respond. As the Lord would have it. The king issues a decree. It doesn't matter that Jonah only went one day out of three into the city. Assuming that the rest would find out via Facebook or Twitter. Maybe an Instagram post. But nonetheless, 
the king issues. It comes to the king's ear. He issues a decree, staggering decree. Don't let people or animals, herds or flock, taste anything. This goes beyond sackcloth and ashes. Bankruptcy such that the entire land is bankrupt. This is repentance. This is a morning of sin on a scale that if we saw it today, it would transform our nation. And the king finishes by saying, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. He hasn't heard anything of the name of the Lord and yet he makes no assumptions of him. There are no expectations. He hears and he accepts the word from an almighty, holy God. And he seeks his grace and mercy. The Lord grants it. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. I mean, Jonah got a second chance. The Ninevites get one, well, a third of a one, take it. But it's never really about... Jonah or the Ninevites, it's actually about the God of all grace, isn't it? When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And the interesting thing is that this message, this incredible ironic message that we hear in the book of Jonah is something that Jesus takes up and applies in his context. It's called the sign of Jonah. And uh, in the other passage that was read to us, and I don't know if you've already heard it alluded to in the, um, in the uh, series so far. Have, have, Pete, have these guys already heard this passage? Great, excellent. Uh, so you're not unfamiliar with it. And, uh, and in it, in verse 38, we actually read that some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, the last time Jesus displayed his power, which was in this same context, in front of these same people, they said he only casts out demons, an amazing act. He shows his authority and he casts out demons and they said he only did it by the power of the prince of demons. Yeah, I know. It's a bit laughable, isn't it? And so understandably, he answers and says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, look, guys, just remember, when he says adulterous, he never means specifically sexual immorality. First, he means adultery against God. Idolatry in the Old Testament, you know, through the prophets, the Lord often describes it as adultery. It's probably one of the most powerful images that comes through about idolatry. I am your betrothed. I am your one flesh. And you have gone off and laid down under every green tree and on every high hill, lusting after other gods. See the image? Right? Now, sure, 
the compromising of our sexuality ties in very close with it and almost always goes with idolatry. So make no mistake that when you see the temptation and you flirt with it inside to go after other gods, to follow idols, it will, that adultery will actually take you very close, almost seamlessly to the compromising of your sexuality because they are so, your sexuality is so much about who you are as one made in the image of God. So that's just a, a little bit of background there. But he says, None will be given this wicked and adulterous generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. See, we remember how we said the real issue for Jonah was not, you know, um, the situation or anything. It, it wasn't his knowledge. It was his unwillingness. It was a hard issue and it's the same here. Jesus is actually saying to the people there, uh, your inability to receive me as you should is not a knowledge thing. It is a will thing, a thing of your will. Your will is compromised and perverted. And that's what sin or the rejection of God or putting ourselves in the creator seat and saying, not your will, but my will, O Lord. That is what it produces. And that's the problem Jesus has with their asking for signs. There is no bad question when it is asked from a heart that desires to know the truth. But he knows that that is not the case here. And therefore, no amount of proof, casting out of demons, feeding of thousands, walking on water, no amount of proof No number of healings. No hanging around at cemeteries and knocking on caskets, pulling out the occupants. No amount of it will be enough. And then he actually goes on in verse 40 and says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he actually uses the sign of Jonah in two ways. It is testament to the issues that were in Jonah, those who claim to be believers but act out of disobedience. And then it goes on to the actual image of God rescuing a disobedient believer in Jonah through this whale of a story or big fish or whatever it was, being in its belly three nights and then being thrown out. And and you sort of say, you know how there's all the debates about is this book historical is it just parabolic is it is it symbolic is it meant to be real Jesus is saying it's real he's actually using it and he's saying let me tell you whatever you think about Jonah here is the symbol here is the application because as he was three days and three nights in the belly of this fish so the son of man will do the same thing in reality in history Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so what he's really saying, once again, is that this is not about knowledge. It is not about proof. Even if the Son of God should, more than pulling people out of wheelchairs and tapping on caskets, if he should die himself and three days later prove it's not a near-death experience, 
three days later, rise from the grave. And walk around for six weeks. Speaking not just to individuals on roads to Emmaus, but to groups of up to 500 people. It still won't be enough. And indeed it wasn't. It wasn't. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a similar parable. And uh, I'm only quoting the the end of it. Um, The formerly rich man answered Father Abraham, in whose bosom was resting the poor man Lazarus, the formerly poor man Lazarus. And he says to him, If you won't ease my pain and suffering, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He pleased that they might be warned of the truth, the real truth, the truth of the inscrutable purposes of the holy God. And Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. God's been speaking to them through their whole history. No, Father Abraham, he says, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. I'm sure of it. And Father Abraham, well, in fact, this is a parable. This is Jesus saying, Father Abraham says, rich man, we're not even told his name. Knowledge is not their problem. The perversion of their will is the issue. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus says in John chapter 5 to the same Pharisees, you search the scriptures believing that in them you have eternal life and you're right for they speak and point to me and yet you refuse to come that you might have life. And so this sign of Jonah finishes in verse 41 with Jesus actually picking up from Jonah and then speaking about the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh rising up, standing up with this generation to condemn it on the day of judgment because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The half-hearted, rebellious preaching of the prophet of Amittai and of course now something with far more heart than Jonah is here guys we we never like being shown up and this is this is a powerful book because it is bad news when the unbelievers show up the believers for their unbelief as Jonah got a second chance in a sense so do these Pharisees that are asking Jesus for a sign because they would crucify the Christ and then amazingly forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name, including to them, so that when Peter says on the day of Pentecost, the Lord, the Lord, he who is appointed both Lord and Christ, you crucified. And they say, 
What can we possibly do to be saved? There is, there, there can't be any chance. We now see the truth of what we've done. And we read that many of the Sanhedrin, the council of the Pharisees, put their trust in Jesus with a second chance. Maybe a bit like Jonah. I don't know about you, but I reckon I've had a heck of a lot more than two chances. How many have you had? Will it just be the persistently unbelieving Pharisees who are shamed on the day of judgment? That evil and adulterous generation for the knowledge that they have received and rejected? What about the knowledge we have received and rejected? As people who stand on this side of the cross, the resurrection, the ministry, the full revelation of the character of God and his holy grace that does not sweep sin under the carpet and yet fulfills his justice in mercy and grace as he bears your sin and mine and the punishment for it at the cross. I've got to ask a question as I finish and say, because this, this is the question that came to me as I was preparing this. Did the cross of Christ do it for you? Was it enough? Are you still waiting for more? Are you putting conditions on God and are you refusing to serve God the way that you really know that you not just need to, but you want to? Because his love for you, you you can't help but see, and you know his love evokes love. But you are stuck in law or you are stuck in conditions or you are stuck in your pain. And you maintain a bondage to things that you know he died to set you free from. Bringing both his, your forgiveness and your healing. Dealing with the sin you've committed and that which has been committed against you. Are you still putting conditions upon God? Are you justifying your materialism or consumerism? Are you still messing with really how much you are allowed to control the agenda of your life? If you are, then you are saying, Lord, give me a sign. Give me a sign. Because the cross, I can't believe I'm saying it, but guys, this I've seen in my own heart. I'm effectively saying the cross didn't do it for me. The cross was not enough. Let it not be the case. Look into the depths of this grace, these wonderful truths that we are singing about. And lay everything of your rebellion and your rejection of him at the foot of Calvary's tree and knowing that it has been taken up there and determine that you are not going to find a way to keep it. You are going to stop dealing with your sin anywhere else. You are going to stop denying it, pretending it's really not sin at all, minimising it, projecting it onto others. 
you are going to see it fully and completely dealt with there and you will be content. Let us pray. Dear Lord, how we thank you for to grace how great a debtor we are. And yet, Lord, we don't, the way we want to respond to you, the praise, the glory that flows from our hearts to you is not an order or a shoulda. It's not, you know, our, our, our duty. It is your love finally bringing to life our dead hearts and evoking love from us because you have swept away our guilt and our shame, our pain and our fear, so that we can now step out and be all that you have appointed us to be. You gave it all. You held back nothing. Forgive us, Lord, for how much we have held back. Help us not to go a third of the way or half the way or two-thirds of the way, but help us to be willing to go wherever you choose. Help us to be willing. Have your way with us, Father. For the glory of your name, in the church and in Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen.